Yo, this is Real Sankar Hours. Real Sankar Hours. Follow us at Sankar Hours on Twitter. Um, also, our Patreon. Uh, this is a free episode, but if you want our bonus episodes, we're, we have a lot of uh, fun stuff. We do theory reading and rants. Um, subscribe for $5 a month, www.patreon.com slash Real Sankar Hours. And our RSS feed, so you can stay in touch with us on Spotify and streaming services. Um, find our RSS feed at realsunkarhours.podbean.com. Uh, we have a special guest with us. I'm so excited. Uh, we're going to be talking about mutual aid and the economic fallout of uh, the pandemic. I'm Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson Five on Twitter. And this is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn Peter. And um, I will let our guest uh, introduce herself. Um, Thanks, guys. Um, I'm Natalia. I'm uh, anti-displacement coup on Twitter. Mostly tweet about gentrification. That's all I really care about. Um, and I am part of the San Francisco Neighbors Solidarity Network. Um, thank you guys so much for having me on your podcast. Um, it's an honor to be on a podcast named after Thomas Sankara. First of all, anti-imperialist and feminist hero. Thank you guys. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm definitely excited. And, and Natalia and I, you and I have known each other for the past couple of years. So it's nice to, you know, um, talk to you in general. Yeah. Always yeah. enjoy our conversations. Yeah. Um, so let's just let's just get started so do you want to talk about uh, natalia um the kind of um mutual aid work that you're doing particularly in san francisco in light of the pandemic that's just been you know shutting down the entire world at this point yeah absolutely so um i'm working with a, a small group of friends and comrades um, on an effort which is called the san francisco neighbors solidarity network um i actually had this idea a you know before the coronavirus happened like sometime at the end of last year um just conversations with friends about trying to set up something that would basically be like a rapid response network um, all across San Francisco with people in every neighborhood in San Francisco where um, we could put out calls so that people could um, basically support people against threats of displacement. Um, and that idea basically came from, you know, the past 10 years or so of, um, you know, doing tenant organizing and being a part of anti-gentrification and anti-displacement struggles um, that there, you know, this idea that there are many threats to displacement, you know, your landlord raising your rent or trying to evict you is not the only one. And if we can strengthen those ties um between you know starting just in our own neighborhoods between neighbors and then kind of building it outward to be citywide um we could you know build power and uh and deal with those threats um 
one by one. So that's basically the concept. Um, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, so I have a lot of ties to my neighborhood on the west side. Um, and that was basically the idea for the Solidarity Network. And when coronavirus happened, um, that you know, it, it just became like an idea that could immediately be put into action. Um, so we, what we do is um, every Wednesday, we um, deliver about 72 grocery bags to households in neighborhoods across the city. So really just uh north beach chinatown potrero hill the mission south of market um western edition fillmore park merced the richmond um and in the future if you know if our organizing capacity grows i would also really love to um to to be bringing free groceries to the outer neighborhoods of san francisco as well um like the Excelsior or the Bayview. Um, so yeah, what we do is we um, buy groceries, um, you know, at a discount and through donations on Mondays and uh, we package them up. And then on Wednesdays, we are just um, spreading out and doing deliveries all throughout the city. Um, and then after we've done our uh, run of deliveries. We um, go around to some of the encampments with houseless people that we've made connections with, and um, we hand out sandwiches, water, fruit, and face masks, um, as well as any, you know, kind of like warm, warm items like blankets or you know, jackets that we've been able to collect during the week. And that is what we do. And uh, there's about, there's about five to 10 of us involved. We each have hmm. different roles. Um, you know, my, my friend is involved, who's a nurse. Um, she's making homemade hand sanitizer for us to hand out hmm. um, some people do delivery runs in certain neighborhoods um, and then of course we we really try to um, take as many precautions as possible um, get everybody on the same page in terms of you know safety protocols um, and try to make the whole operation as safe as possible uh, so before I forget, um, if people want to contribute and help, like what, what's the best way to get in touch with you guys? Oh, for sure. So um, thanks for asking. Yeah, we so we can be reached by email okay. at network at gmail.com. Okay. So if anybody wants to recommend somebody to be on our list you know somebody who needs to be checked up on um you can send us an email that way um if you want to donate so that we can um buy more groceries every week um that email is also our paypal and then our venmo is at sf neighbors um and that's how we take donations through paypal and venmo 
Um, and then we also have a phone number. Um, so basically it's set up as a, um, a voicemail answering service. So people can call us at 415-347-1460 and leave a message about what their needs are and, um, and then we try to meet them. Uh, before I be, uh, Peter, do you have a question or something you want to add? Or, um, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. Um, first of all, I think it's mutual aid's very important in a time like this. But I guess my question is, um, because most, I, you know, I've been doing my best to, I guess, you know, stay at home and everything. So on the rare occasions I do venture out, I, I only get a limited understanding of like what it is like to live in a city in this time. And especially for like the, the vulnerable communities. I mean, where I live, there's been reports of like extra police um, crackdown. What is like been your experience of just like, I guess the outdoor general life and especially in the, you know, more precarious communities uh, in San Francisco during- Yeah, for pandemic? sure. Well. Capitalism has a lot of crises, right? Um, this particular one is one in which, I mean, yeah, we could say that all crises of capitalism are ones in which vulnerable, vulnerable people are made even more vulnerable. But I feel like this is really especially true, you know, right now um, in the context of, you know, what's a, what is a massive public health crisis. Um, I think, you know, it's really hard. We have, uh, you know, we have these neoliberal mayors in, uh, the Bay area and, um, sheltering, uh, homeless people is not really a priority for them at all. Um, you know, in San Francisco, it's, this is one of the richest cities in the world. Our hotel rooms have been paid for already and homeless people are still not in them wait so sorry but the whole so the hotels have been paid for i yeah i i'm i read something that uh -huh. was saying that the city is spending thirty thousand dollars a day on mm. vacant reserved hotel rooms that are supposed to go for up to eight thousand homeless people Okay. There's less than a thousand homeless people in those hotel rooms now, um, you know, two, two and a half months into the crisis. And so, so basically, so there's still homeless people and a ton of empty hotel rooms. Right. And <laughs> the two aren't, they're not being met for some reason. Right. 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 And the problem is, yeah. um, you know, that, the shelters have, you know, the shelters closed almost immediately, which makes sense, of course, because you don't want a lot of, you know, people together in a confined space. Um, but the problem is, is that there, you know, there could have been an immediate transition where people wouldn't have been dumped on mass into the street, but that's exactly what has happened. Wait, seriously? Yeah, Wait, I mean, I, I, the the Damn. the population of homeless people that are living on the street has skyrocketed in the last two months because the shelter.
shelters are closed. Oh my. Yeah, no, God. it's really bad. And it's, and you know, it's not just a public health crisis for houseless people. It's a public health crisis for everyone because uh, we're all, you know, coming in contact with each other. Um, but of course, people living in encampments on the street without protection, without masks, are extremely vulnerable. And, um, and, you know, I think there's like many layers to this. I was thinking the other day about how uh, people living on the street, you know, they have um, connections to different uh, restaurants uh, where maybe they can, you know, they know the people that work there, they can get food, um, you know, uh, and, and that's something that's not happening either because all the restaurants are closed. So I, I think it's really scary, you know, it's kind of like a weird, uh, like, boarded up wasteland out there and homeless people are supposed to just uh you know figure it out um on their own which to their credit uh, you know a lot of the people that we have encountered are doing an actually really good job of um taking care of kind of their immediate community in terms of an encampment and i definitely see that um one of you know one of our goals would be to try to support people who are taking care of each other within encampments so i uh, before this sfpd were doing sweeps yeah. pretty yeah. regularly yeah. right are they still doing sweeps you know i think that um there are less sweeps than there were before um you know there's a lot of weird stuff that's been going on in the city right before this happened you know the director of dpw um was being uh federally investigated for corruption um this is like a close friend of the mayor and somebody who basically has orchestrated the street sweeps program over the past 20 years um so there there was a lot kind of like in chaos right before this hit and i think that you know it, it's like a very weird time because there's no real consistency to like you know what the rules are on the one hand like we're um not getting parking tickets which is great and huh. on the other hand um you know street sweeps are um much less frequent because i think the city recognizes that if it's not going to do the right thing and put houseless people in hotel rooms it can at least just not fuck with them you know mm. um so i think there's some of that going on um but you know at at the same time it's this like this is still an absolute crisis of of very vulnerable people. So um, before we get, uh, yeah, because I want to transition into the the larger systemic stuff. But the 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 before I we get into that, I do want to um, ask you because I think it'll be really important for people who live outside of the Bay Area and outside of San Francisco. Uh, what what is what is your take on Mayor London Breed and how she's been handling 
um, just the overall housing crisis in San Francisco and particularly the, you know, the treatment of houseless people and, and uh, the issues of uh, gentrification uh, and displacement. Cause I know like, I think cause I think cause sometimes uh, London breeds, um, I guess her image is yeah. a, a lot different than the reality of her term politics. Yeah. yeah. So I want to like expl explain that. Like, what, yeah, what's totally. Your yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, you know, I said a minute ago that like <laughs> the Bay Area has these great neoliberal mayors. I mean, you in the East Bay, you guys have Libby Schaaf, who's kind of like basically the same thing as London Breed. Um, but um, yeah, this, you know, is this, these people that were put into office because, you know, they're, you know, friends with um, developers, they're friends with the real estate industry, you know, big supporters of, of tech. Um, and that's really where, that's where London Breed's politics are. Um, yeah, I mean, she, you know, she has a great, like, story, you know, origin story or something in terms of like being from San Francisco, um, being, you know, raised in public housing in the Fillmore Western edition, but she has total sellout politics. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that's, uh, I think that's kind of like the era that, you know, in a, in a larger sense, I think that's kind of the era that we're in right now, right? Where like, the the viability of the democratic party to be seen as as any kind of um any kind of party that is looking out for you know working class people's best interests is like really waning so so much so now i think like you know um politicians are really heavily dependent on um on having cool sounding biographical details, um, but really, really bad politics. I, I was just, so mm -hmm. there's this um, article in uh, KQED and they asked a bunch of um, real estate experts about the um, Bay Area housing post pandemics, like what's in store. So some of their kind of conclusions were rents will soften um, but housing prices may not come down. Income inequality will grow. Um, new housing construction might slow down. Um, but the, at the end, they say, uh, who will benefit? And they have um, two real estate experts, and they both say, essentially, that private equity firms and investors are the ones who are going to come out on top. I'm going I'm to quote Gustavo Lopez. So he said... You know, when asked like who will benefit, he said investors, the ones at the top, the that have the money in reserve, those guys are basically going to come over and buy for cheap. Those guys are the guys that will win, and they will always win because they have the resources, they have the money, they have the reserves. And um, I want to connect this to a a previous episode we did about the um, the uh, so-called uh, bailout, which was really just a. Mm -hmm. um, a slush fund for Wall Street and corporate America. So like it's basically just trillions of dollars for free money for the big banks and large corporations. Meanwhile, like the reality you're talking about on the ground for 
some of the most vulnerable communities and 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 not and also just for a lot of everyday regular working class people like people are not seeing the relief that is needed particularly with the severe economic fallout of this pandemic because um i mean every week the unemployment just grows and grows and grows um yeah. in April, yeah in, in april the unemployment rate reached 14 but 14.7 percent which is the highest since the great depression so we're basically at 15 percent unemployment um there's an article in the washington post about grocery prices which grocery prices saw the sharpest increase since 1974 um there are many people who still have to wait months for their stimulus that $1,200 stimulus check yeah if, yeah if it's not if it's oh, not yeah. just uh <laughs> immediately taken out of their bank account to right pay outstanding debts right yeah. yeah and also and also like the so-called job gains since the great recession ha have all been wiped out um it seems like even before this pandemic there was already a crisis that was sort of peppered over by like a quote-unquote recovery but now this pandemic is showing is that like okay these jobs were already economically insecure and they can't take care of people uh during a, a, a massive public health crisis um and so now we're at the point where it's like okay there was a stimulus bill passed but it really helped the balance sheets of of the big banks and now so, we're at, yeah what? and so now we're okay. at this we're at the point where it's like um, like I was saying, I'll, I'll just put this out. I'll just, I'll just start off with this, because uh, we were talking about this before we were recording. The left is kind of like in this weird post-Bernie stupor, where it's like, okay, well, what, what the fuck do we do and call for? Because there is a massive public health crisis, but at the same time, people have to eat, people have to pay rent, and to me, it seems like the most logical thing is um, canceling rent and mortgage uh yeah. universal basic income and nationalized healthcare but which yeah, of course. are are pretty basic things but like even within much of the left media like that there's not an aggressive push for that um so I'm, i just want to put that out there for for what you guys think totally um yeah i i guess i want to connect that to what you were saying about how there are multiple causes of displacement, because um, in my own personal situation, where I live in Portland, Maine, is has like a similar sort of affordability crisis, and yet you know, for various reasons, I may have to leave uh, the city pretty soon. But it isn't like, but I and I'm thinking about like, am I being displaced from it? And it seems you know, displacement is this sort of like hidden death by process. a thousand cuts um yeah where it, because we're not like rounding people up and putting them on trains it doesn't seem quite as traumatic but there are a lot of like being forced to move because of economic circumstances can be pretty yeah. traumatic in its own right i guess like how have you how, how have you been experiencing um that phenomenon during the pandemic and has it as the pandemic like accelerated totally. it at all. Yeah, so, so, you know, I think like thinking through this idea, you know, I have, I have more 
every week that we do this, I have more thoughts about like the work that we're doing and how it's connected to other efforts. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that I always come away with is that like, you know, offering solidarity, uh, so, you know, solidarity is, is everything really like, and, you know, if we are seeing ourselves as this, you know, the part of this network of people who are fighting displacement in <clears throat> a city, you know, many of us um, born and raised in San Francisco, many of us here for a long time, um, there's ways that even bringing free groceries to somebody, it's, it's all part of the web of staying housed, you know, staying in place, maybe fighting your eviction. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, I, I like, I just like to think of it as like, you know, when, when, you know, somebody it goes on strike, right? When a worker goes on strike, there's a strike fund and that strike fund goes towards um, making sure that um, that person and their family are able to to put food on the table, regardless of whether or not they're going to work or taking home a paycheck, right? And that's something that we do ourselves because we wanna see the strike succeed, right? So in a lot of ways, coronavirus, we're all kind of like on strike right now, a little mm. bit, you know? Mm -hmm. People mm -hmm. can't go to work, they don't, they might not, you know, they can't go to work. They don't want to go to work. It's like, it's, it's both, you know what I mean? Like, it's not worth it to go to work right now. Um, so we're all kind of yeah. on strike. And at the same time, we're expected to pay our bills and pay our rent. Um, and so I like to think of the work that we're doing and, you know, the work that anybody can do of, you know, getting, households free groceries is just support and solidarity to achieving the means of you know having stability um and being able to participate in in you know struggles of staying in your home um there's a number of people on our list um i realized that are actually people who are um you know, on rent strike. Um, yeah. There are people that have been fighting long-term housing struggles. There's somebody who fought their eviction a few years ago and won. Um, and, um, you know, I feel like also what we're doing is just like saying thank you to those people and like, we, we want to support you. Yeah, it's interesting because delivering groceries is something that is should be like an integral part of you know any form of yeah, quarantine it, it or should be something place. the state like, does really like, right the state's not doing it and but the thing is that even sort of the major charities like goodwill or you know major food banks i guess do, it doesn't seem like they're they have the capacity or will to do it and you said like the shelters i mean those are mostly run by like you know, Salvation Army yeah. types, I, I guess, kind of, yeah, like the nonprofit industrial complex, and they just emptied everyone out onto the street. So it seems to me that like, 
sort of mutual aid solidarity networks are um, filling a gap that is left not just by the state, but also even by charities. Oh, yeah. um, can you, I guess, like, how does the difference in goal and also effect, what's the difference between like solidarity? Yeah, and, and I want to, I want to double down on that question as well, because I think, um, I think there is an actual distinction between mutual aid versus charity and yeah so like explain that difference because i i think peter you're hitting on to something i think is really important because i think for i'm just trying to keep in mind people who probably are not familiar with the idea of mutual aid what that concept is like um yeah so go ahead and explain that natalia because I, th I think that's a really important point totally so yeah so like you know what i was saying a, a moment ago was like i think of what we're doing as trying to just kind of strengthen this uh web um and at the same time you know building working class power right so um and i see this as part of uh, an anti-displacement i mean i see this as an anti-displacement project right that if somebody knows that they are going to get groceries delivered to them every week they can can maybe have the um confidence or whatever to to continue say going on rent strike you know we can like empower each other in different ways and a lot of this basically was also just empowering people to shelter in place you know Sheltering in place is a, is a luxury that not everybody has. Yeah. And so we wanted to take, you know, some of the burden off of particularly elders, you know, to just support them in sheltering in place properly and minimizing their risk. Um, so in terms of mutual aid, you know, I think that um, this is about just supporting people in our community um i think you're definitely right that like you know so many of these nonprofits are just like nowhere to be found right now um uh we're delivering bags of groceries to the midtown park apartments which um adam and i have both written about in the past um, yeah. that's san francisco's longest running ongoing rent strike um mm -hmm. uh of primarily black seniors um who are longtime residents of the fillmore western edition and are actually owed equity um that they are still fighting for and um i've i've been involved in that tenant struggle for um a number of years now so um their their interim property manager when coronavirus happened um canceled their their food bank program you know and it's like this what? is a time yeah this is a time when when what these, the fuck these <laughs> yeah should you know this is a time when these services should obviously be ramped up um and and instead they're just kind of like ducking out of their responsibilities. And thankfully, because like, you know, uh, we've done a lot of close organizing together and the tenants have been self-organized for so many years. Um, that was something that we could take on ourselves um, 
which is fine because honestly it's you know it's it's probably better that way and that's like that's something i think about a lot too because it's like yeah i i would you know in turkey and in vietnam and china or whatever you know they mobilize the the like national guard to deliver groceries to elders you know i obviously cannot ever imagine that happening in uh the united states um but um so yeah like i i think that there's things that the state should be doing um i you know believe in that but on the other hand you know i think that um it's you know it's work that needs to get done and like um doing it isn't it's it's not a burden it's like a it's a privilege you know to be able to um to do that in our community i i also want to add uh particularly about midtown and fillmore um i think i mentioned i, I probably mentioned this previously but um for people who are i think unfamiliar with the the cultural history of the bay area in san francisco uh fillmore used to be referred to as harlem of the west um there's a very rich African-American culture in San Francisco and Oakland and also Richmond, California, that, you know, yeah. when we're talking about displacement, like we're basically, you're like these economic forces that displace people, you're also displacing culture and history. Like yeah. there's something rich there that like, and, it, and this is like a uh, part of my gripe with uh, why I think some of these sort of um, neoliberal technocrats who, uh, you know, like their whole ideology when it comes to housing is that like, you know, they're not really in favor of rent control or public housing or any of those kinds of like massive systemic changes that would prevent displacement in the first place. It's like, hey, look, um, according to this graph, if we put X number of market rate housing, it will make the price of housing go down in year 2026. Yeah. And if you don't buy into that, you're a stupid NIMBY. You don't know what's going on. But I think like, when it comes yes, to, totally opportunistic yeah and when it comes to culture and history you can't really put that on a graph no right you can't yeah and 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 um me personally i i do i play west african drumming and one of the places i got inspired to do that was actually in the fillmore i was at a black mm. media event and there was african drumming and that was part of my inspiration to to do what i do so um and I want—I just wanted to mention that just that bit of uh, cultural history that I think often gets overlooked when, um, you know, and I know you know this, Natalia, but like for those, for people who are outside the Bay Area and are unfamiliar with the history, I think it's, uh, it's uh, really important to consider because when it comes to displacement and why people get upset is like, yeah, you're disrupting communities, you're disrupting culture, history, lineage things that can't can't be put on the graph yeah talking about um gentrification i think uh yeah one thing is that the whole concept of like yimbyism is completely manufactured astroturfed by real estate development companies and it's not like a real thing but the other problem is that um, capitalism itself requires a mobile workforce. And so 
it require it has like an active disinterest in promoting public housing and you know a city that functions for capital um has an active disinterest in sort of encouraging people to like mm-hmm. live their whole lives in the city same with rent control yeah um and yeah exactly and so the question becomes and this is a question that's sort of been bubbling up mostly in academic circles but i think it as you know it should that should be in the broader political conversation is the question of who has the right to the city right because people you know in san francisco you have like teachers who have to commute an hour to teach in public schools and stuff and the people who work to make the city run for you know the bourgeoisie are not even allowed to live in in it so yeah i the question I think that becomes important is like who has the right to live, you know, in the city and enjoy like the benefits of the city. Yeah, um, totally. And and uh, it's gentrification, of course, is is such a weird thing because at the same time as gentrifiers are quote unquote enjoying the city, you know, they're also kind of like sucking the lifeblood out of it. Um, at yep. the same time mm-hmm. in terms of culture, you know, um, yeah, no, that's, that is something you know, I think about every day for sure. And, um, you know, gentrification, you know, it's like, we're living in occupied territories, you know, um, colonialism mm-hmm. is an ongoing project and, you know, freedom from colonialism or against gentrification, therefore, you know, has to be a constant struggle in which we're fighting not just for our rootedness and like our right to live in a place and, um, uh, but also like for our cultures, right? Um, And I think in San Francisco, you know, my, I, I grew up, you know, in the Western neighborhoods, my family is Russian. There's like a big Russian community out here. Um, San Francisco is such a unique place because all of our neighborhoods have different cultures and different ethnic groups. And, um, you know, we lose, we're losing all of that in gentrification, right? But then when you also look at it from the perspective of kind of like the ongoing project of colonialism or the ongoing project of the United States of America, we're actually, the present moment is actually just like the precipice of like total cultural assimilation into the project of the USA, you know, which is like a a dreadful thing to think about in, Mm -hmm. in the larger picture, Uh you know? And I think about that all the time growing up in the city where, you know, we used to have a really strong Russian community in my neighborhood um, you know, really, really, you know, strong Filipino communities, black communities and their dispossession, you know, is just creating this, yeah, gentrified city. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, going back to the Fillmore Western edition and like Adam, we could do an entire podcast about like Midtown and the Western edition, but (laughs) honestly, like, uh, working yeah. with black tenants in that neighborhood has informed so much of my politics and my understanding about gentrification because like 
the cycle of black land theft, you know, in the United States and in San Francisco, in which like black people mm. are basically yep. prevented yeah. by both private, you know, private capital and the government essentially from accumulating property over generations and achieving, you know, stability, cult, you know, uh, community stability uh, is just like just one of the most insane conspiracies um i mean real conspiracies um and you know it, it's almost like um yeah you know every 50 yeah. years it's like you know they're in in the 60s in san francisco there was redevelopment right um which was just like the wholesale dispossession of the black community reparations reparations are absolutely owed for that you know, 50 years later, we have, you know, the mortgage crisis, the foreclosure crisis. Um, you know, now we're having the loss of rent control. So land dispossession is like one of the roots of our struggle, you know, because having a home and having stable housing is what allows us to participate in other struggles and endeavors, right? Like labor or art. Yeah. Ahead, I also want to, I also want to say that it isn't like a metaphor of like settler colonialism, gentrification. I mean, well, there is also like a specific like indigenous urban, you know, story and history, but also that the interest of land speculation that drove the settler colonial project um, and dispossession. The same companies, therein, the same are families. The same yeah. I mean, in some instances, it's like literally the same companies. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I lived in San Francisco for a year in 2012, and then I came back a few years later in 2016, just like to visit for a couple of days, and I was shocked at oh, even yeah. how much had changed then. And I'm honestly oh. scared to go back now because I feel dude, like I dude, like I that. I remember. Okay, I'll I'll tell a story that like really just it was there was something just so um like almost twilight zone but like also infuriating at the same time so so dolores park in the mission district is like a very like it's a beautiful park i'm i remember back yeah. uh, this is 2011 so oh shit going back to t t 10 years almost 10 years i i remember yeah. uh i would I, I would go with my friends there and like you had to hide your beer you had to hide your alcohol otherwise you get arrested for it right uh i go back to dolores park back in fuck what was it i think it was like 20 i think late 2018 around there um and it looks it yeah no it's, it's dude it's fucking monster. coachella it looks like a goddamn yeah. fucking coachella instagram yeah. kind of phenomenon and what was what here's what was the most shocking is like there is this white dude uh dressed in whatever i don't know what he was dressing he was he's like kind of funky and he was um he was selling me he, he asked if i wanted to buy some weed brownies some marijuana brownies and I, I you know i said no but i stopped and i thought about it. i was like you know what if 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 yeah if this happened like maybe five years ago i'd get arrested like just by being and it's like wait this white dude can just sell pot just willy-nilly like at a you know a sort of wannabe coachella area and just be like hey dude want some pot man like i'm gonna go up to this black dude and sell him some pot and it's like 
dude, if I like, if, that, if that shit happened five yeah. years ago, I'd be arrested. My life would be ruined. And I think about like all the the numerous like black and Latinos whose lives have been fucking ruined by these sorts of very harsh drug war and other uh, sort of um, uh, policies. And it's like there's there's very little justice for them, especially since California legalized marijuana. There's there's very little yeah. like, you know, especially when we're thinking about reparations, there's not even reparations for them. Yeah, Dolores Dolores Park is a good example of that because you know that that used to be uh that used to be a Latino park, you know. There then there used to be gang injunctions in Dolores Park. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know? And um yeah, and and it's and it's it, it, it's just gentrification is a yeah. process. You know what I mean? It's like Dolores Park. You know, there were gang injunctions that paved mm-hmm. the way for it to become what it is now. And so, like, understanding that gentrification is a process means that, like, we always have opportunities to intervene. You know? Yeah, and also, it's not at people especially developers, you know, act like this process that didn't even exist 50 years ago is this sort of natural ebb and flow of the currents. And it's just something that is as old as time. There's nothing we can do about, but that's not true. It is very much a deliberate and, you know, specific process that is, that is undergone by totally this whole, this whole apparatus. Yeah. When I was thinking about this talk, I I kept thinking about, there's this like Hegel quote that I really like um, that I think was like uh, then kind of taken Mm. up by like the situationists. He says, um, what is good appears, what appears is good. Right. So like we have this idea that the way things are, which is like, class society, racism, police violence, our built environment, like our very limited aesthetics, you know, um, exist within like this ordered appearance or of normalcy, you know? Um, And of course, like the counter to this, you know, I had, I had hippie parents. So like, I always, there's this like Krishnamurti quote. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but um, (laughs) it, uh, it's it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Mm. I think I've I've heard that quote. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought it was doctor. I thought do- did Doctor King do a similar quote? Yeah, he he yeah, has that's, a quote. That's like what that I do too. with this with this uh, Krishna Krishna Murti quote. I'm sure it's like a very similar concept to to just like you know, there's a lot of power in like this the kind of like spectacle of what appears in our world you know it doesn't mean that it's okay it doesn't mean it's it's acceptable you know because it's not yeah it's interesting that you bring up sort of the normalcy because i think that's something that's been weighing on my mind a lot right now is what is normal going to look like as we know as we're settling in for you know this this uh, virus to be around for, you know, another couple of years, right? Um, what is, yeah, what is, what is normalcy I, I, going to I'll be? I'll jump you know? into that, actually, because we... I've been thinking about that, because, I mean, aside from freelance writing, I, I, I teach, I'm a teaching assistant, and look, like, I, you know, I finished graduate school a couple months ago, and my plan was like, okay, 
you know, like get my MFA, go through that. And like, I want to be able to teach and work in my community, basically, um, both to like, you know, freelance writing, it's not stable income, but it's like, okay, if I can make a stable income, you know, teaching in, in some capacity uh, and serving my community, like I, I, I could be fine. I, I can be content with my life, but like, like with this pandemic, it's, it seems like, okay, I, I don't even know if I can do that because I was talking to one of my supervisors about like, okay, what's the future of teaching going to look like? And so far from what I can gather, definitely next semester when it comes to community colleges and definitely like the UCs and CSUs, most of the classes are going to be online or hybrid. So when it comes to physical one-on-one -on -one classes in education, the new normal seems like it's gonna be online or hybrid education. And that's just education. And look, like most teachers are not prepared to teach online. Like, especially, you know, and, and I'm a millennial. Like, I'm thinking also about teachers who've had like been teaching for 20, 25 years. If you tell them, okay, switch to online education right now, you, you can't really wave a magic wand and tell a teacher whose entire pedagogy relies on face to face interaction with students. Like you can't really just wave a, wave a magic wand and have them like switch all that to Zoom classes because how the fuck do you get kids to pay attention on the computer? Like, and how do you hold students accountable? And I think like when it comes to normalcy, like I, at this point, like there is no normal anymore, which I, you know, I think is both good and bad, but I think, you know, when it comes to whatever left-wing response or response in general, and this is like kind of getting into my issues with people who are super obsessed with Biden versus Trump, because I think people who are settling for Biden as a lesser two evils, I think, uh, Peter, not, Peter, you and I have been talking about this, but I think like sometimes when people vo vo vote for Biden, a lot of it has to do with just nostalgia for some sort of normalcy that existed pre-Trump. Like, okay, if we can get Biden, I think when people are trying to vote for Biden, uh, it's not really because they like Biden as as a person. I and to be honest, I don't think most people really like Biden as a person. I think the love for Biden is really like basically people want to return to the normalcy of the Obama era. Like if we can just go back to 2014 or 2011, um, which yeah. is before the era of Trump, then things will be better. But the thing is, is that but the thing is, is that like. I was saying this on a previous podcast I was on, uh, Escape from Plan A, is that like, I, I like the George Jackson yeah. quote where, where he says, uh, fascism is already here. Like the, the, re the reality of America in terms of like the level of institutionalized violence within our borders against black people and other, mar and other colonized people, especially Native Americans, you know that reality has always been bad. Like the norm, the normal, the normal state for black people mm -hmm. is shit. Is <laughs> is bad. Is 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 consistent police brutality yeah. and mass incarceration, and debt peonage and and poverty. And even pre COVID, um, I think there was a study done that showed that half of the country lives below or near yeah. poverty, and that was pre COVID, right? And so the previous normalcy. Yeah was already bad. And I remember just as a reporter in 2013, one of my uh, issues I had going to Guantanamo is that like, I went to Guantanamo during the Obama years, the second Obama term, after he had promised to close it and it was still open. So 
I think like going forward, mm. I think like we just have to just shed this notion that like things can go back to normal. And also like, was the previous normal really good? And if the previous normal was not good, then like, okay, maybe we should chart a vision for a better future. But I think like when, when, especially with the, the left's energy right now, post Bernie, it's like, okay, if we just get Trump out of office, like, okay, yeah, if you get him out of office, like what's, what's going to be left? The, in the normal system of white supremacy and capitalism and imperialism just under another guy with, <laughs> I, I don't even know what people expect with Biden. Like he's, I, I I'm hey, amazed. Hey, we don't know, hey, we don't know that for sure. Adam. His own ass at this point. Like the guy, come on. I don't, you, you, don't, should, you shouldn't, yeah. You know what happens when you assume things. <laughs> yeah. You shouldn't, you That's shouldn't, true, true. you shouldn't presume things. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> I, I take I take yeah, that. Back. I I yeah. do want to say <laughs> I'm just amazed he's sentient. I do. Yeah. Uh, e- even that I I don't know, but I do think I do think it's interesting the idea that if the if because yeah the powers that be have to hide behind a veil of normalcy, but when we're well if we're accepting basically that there is no such thing as normal anymore, then sort of the actual the nakedness of those structures becomes impossible to avoid. I mean, it is, it's like, I will say about the people who are like clamoring to reopen. I mean, not those, um, not those specific, you know, gun toting, uh, used car salesmen or whatever, boat salesmen. Um, I don't care about them, but regular people who, you know, I mean, everyone's Mm kind of sick of this shit. Honestly, I'm kind of sick of it too. And you know, part of me, like, would like to go back to work in the sense of just, like, you know, people, it's very hard when you are just sitting at home all the time, and you don't feel productive, you don't feel like you're doing anything. But it isn't just like, oh, well, everyone just goes back to work. And even if, like, a million people die, like, that's the price we pay. I mean, that's, like, that's not how, like, the economy works either. So it seems that, like, we really are in quite a bind right now and I don't see how you know it's going to get resolved even by the election nothing is going to get resolved by the election I mean I I almost feel like it's not even going to happen honestly like I can't really I can't it's not really something I can picture happening right right now you know yeah like with Bernie you know when you're talking about like post Bernie fallout whatever yeah I definitely had a month there you know i'm like you know an anarchist in terms of like electoral politics but i had a month there where i was like i was like oh my god we're bernie it's really gonna happen like i like this guy like um but you know they were never gonna let bernie win you know exactly like the ruling class was never going to let bernie win um even though the people wanted him like clearly you know but you know, like I said, like, we, you know, we know what we want. So if anything, I think it's like, I think it's good that we could just, you know, I'm trying to be positive here, like, to have a barometer check of like, oh, there's, yeah, right. Just, we do have mass support for like, his ideas, you know, yeah. like, universal health care, rent control, <laughs> um, like, you know, policies that are geared towards supporting and building up the working class 
um, we know what we want. Like we don't have to debate it anymore, you know? And, and I actually think that like not voting now is our power, right? Like, okay, we have the ability to animate like the arena of electoral politics just to see what we're all thinking. But when that possibility is foreclosed upon, like we can abandon it because we see what a farce it is. It probably always will be a farce. And then we, you know, we just need to like get back to work. <laughs> the, the good kind of work. Not... The good kind yeah. of work. And, yeah. And that's, um, that's something that's, I'm glad you said that, Natalia, because I, I, that's something that's been on my mind. Like, you know, like, I feel the same way as Peter's that like it does suck to be indoors constantly like there are times I feel myself like wait am I going crazy like what the yeah. you know it's 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 very easy and I think it is pretty you know to use the term normal to feel that way and I, I, I and I've been trying to think about like you know moving forward and I've been critiquing the left mostly from a, a constructively right because I do think that to whatever extent that the left exists in america because there really is no organized capital l left but i think you can say like there are like um uh sort of at least sentiments and forces within the disorganized yeah disorganized and sentiments yeah disorganized left and sentiments and forces of the american population that whose politics actually is further to the left than the democratic party right so and, and I've been thinking about like, you know, um, whatever institutional left that exists, like progressive media and because I've been working in independent progressive media for a while. So I, I do think about this and like just just sort of, you know, like evaluating like, OK, um, is there anything that we can do better going forward? And I do think that a, a huge segment of progressive media, independent progressive media put too much eggs in the Bernie basket and didn't really address like, okay, like what should we do after Bernie? And also like not give him a pass for certain things because right now the FBI, uh, I think the Senate just passed a bill to let the FBI warrantlessly spy on your internet browsing history. And Bernie, so there is an amendment to that bill that would have, uh, that would have gotten rid of that. And, um there were it needed to it needed to pass by 60 votes to meet that sort of you know dumb senate threshold um and bernie sanders didn't show up to vote at all and it failed that yeah. that amendment failed to pass by one vote and that's like that's a huge fuck up on bernie like i'm sorry like yeah. i i'm I'm just, I'm just gonna let this off my chest like d- dude that is bullshit <laughs> that's fucking bullshit for bernie sanders to like look you you led this sort of army telling people that we're going to wage a revolution inside the democratic party. But like even Elizabeth Warren, who's not as left as Bernie Sanders, even she voted for that amendment. And it's like, to me, that shows like, that's a bad look. How (laughs) inept, like how inept this strategy was to put all of the left, the left uh, eggs in this Bernie basket. Like, look, like, you know, look, I got, I got caught up in the Bernie wave a little bit at times. I get it. Like, because the left is so used to losing and it seemed like, okay, there seemed like there's a chance for the left to win with Bernie Sanders, because especially since the left is so fucking disorganized, like it does make sense. Like, yeah, let's get this guy in. But, you know, I do think it's, it's, we can't look at Bernie and the democratic party through rose colored glasses. And I think that was, I think I, and just, again, just to be constructively critical, I think there are too many people 
in the progressive media left circle that I think looked at Bernie Sanders through rose colored glasses. And, you know, the fact that he didn't step forward on the Senate floor to add his vote to that amendment, which would have gotten rid of that provision, which allows the FBI to just straight up search your internet browsing history with no warrant. That, that is fucking embarrassing. Like it, it it's fucking it's, yeah. it's someone who's reported to uh, about Guantanamo for years and has been to Guantanamo to see someone like Bernie Sanders who talks about revolution and all this shit for, for him to not do that 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 is fucking abominable and it's like I'm just like at this point this this whole idea that like the left and I agree with you Natalia like the Democratic Party was never going to let the left actually take power because they're controlled by the very forces that keep workers and and marginalized people and colonized people in a state of misery. So there's no way, yeah. like if you're representing a, a political force that's saying like, hey, we need to get justice for the number of black people who've been murdered by police, which still keeps fucking happening, or like rent control and all these other populist ideas. Look, the, the Democratic Party and the people who control it, they're the ones who don't want that. Like their whole way yeah. of life and their interest is predicated on keeping that there. So there's no fucking way that the left was going to take over the Democratic Party unless like, look, you're going to have to fight them. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. I just want to get that off my chest because once I saw that FBI thing, I was just, I was just livid. I'm, I'm so fucking pissed when I saw that shit. Yeah, I saw that. I will, I will say that. I didn't look all the way into it, but it sounds, I'm sure that if you ask Bernie, I don't know. I don't always trust those votes. Like, uh, like why? Like, I, like they obviously were going to seize on it to make him look bad. I don't know. He probably, maybe you should have voted for it. I also feel like the FBI does that anyway. So. Yeah, but I'm I mean. Entire- <laughs> well, I, well, it, it is, I think it is a bad look when people like Bernie Sanders and the entire Democratic Party are saying, Trump is a big ex- existential threat and we need to get him out of office. If you vote for a bill or don't lend your vote to an amendment that can give him less power, that's a bad fucking look. Like you, you have no leg to stand on because, because the Bernie, Bernie's yeah. telling people, he's telling his supporters, you have to vote for Biden because Trump is an existential threat. Well, if you didn't vote for an amendment that would have at least curtailed a smidge a bit because the fbi already has a ton of power but like don't give them more power and if you can if you can use whatever power you do have in the senate senate you should use it to prevent that from happening and the fact that he didn't and he's telling people he needs to people need to vote for biden because trump is an existential threat well then you look you just gave trump more power to spy on people so you you have no leg to stand on. i mean he gave he gave trump more power when he dropped you know when he Dropped out. Yeah, you know so, when he let them force him out. You know, so it's just I, I, I'm just, I'm just done with giving Bernie Sanders passes. Like it's just, it's bullshit. Like I'm, yeah, it's totally. Bullsh- it's, and- it's fucking bullshit. And I just, I, I'm just sick of giving these people passes, especially like when it comes to shit like the the war machine. Like, look, with this pandemic and all the resources we have that we put in our war machine, if if we just basically just close all of our bases all the money we spend on like f-16s and all these fighter jets put that money toward toward a nationalized healthcare system we, we'd be set i mean like not totally of set, course. but like yeah of we'd course. be in a much better state than we are now and there's no one 
in the Democratic Party mainstream or any, not even the left, because I feel like the left has totally dropped anti-war stuff. This is where we're at. And it's, it, it is kind of just, you know, aggravating. And, and yeah, when I saw that bill, it's just like, look, my response is like, yeah, Bernie, wow, you really just, <laughs> I don't know what to say. But yeah, I, yeah, you should have at least been paying attention to the optics of it. I don't know. Yeah, it, it took me like, you know, five minutes to be like, okay, Bernie's not happening. Fuck it. You know what? You know what I mean? Because, because like, I mean, shit's embarrassing, really. I, I'm actually yeah. like low key embarrassed that I was like, I was really feeling it for like maybe like a month I... there, you know? Um, but, you know, I, yeah, I have a friend who's an anarchist and he was like, you know, what Bernie should have been doing is just helping set up um, just organizing efforts in in cities and towns and like rural areas all across the country, you know, like setting people, helping to set people up to go on rent strike, to do all these things. Um, because there was definitely, those people seem to have like the, the, structural um you know they had the network in place there yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and there's a lot that could have been done completely outside the arena of um just the campaign and electoral politics that didn't happen and like why not you know um i mean obviously i think people can do all of those things on their own and they don't need some you know guy uh showing them how to do it but just in terms of like that energy and the structure that was there um like i i totally agree with my friend especially in retrospect that that all could have been happening yeah. i mean he could be doing that right now you know yeah but um did you guys see the fucking i like can't even <laughs> like do you guys see the picture of aoc delivering groceries did you guys see that wasn't she like with the police though yes what yes Wait. oh i did i didn't it's, see that adam you have to you have what? to see this it's aoc in it with aoc branded campaign bags right yeah um being escorted through public housing projects with the nypd Oh, oh, yeah. See, this is, yeah, this is like, I had to just let off that steam about the FBI because that just, when I saw that, I was just, it, I was, yeah, I was just mad. But like, look, I mean, I, I think like, I, I think like they're, again, to be constructively critical, I think um, t too many people on the progressive left movement are looking through these leaders through rose colored glasses. And I think I'm glad you brought up that example because that's, 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 that's try, that's part of the reason why, like, I, I think it's important to push back against like looking at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar or whoever, or whoever yeah. through rose colored glasses. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I, it's like, it's, ab that's like absolute trash. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's extremely bad. I, I will say, um, I was, I don't want to say I was on a Zoom call because it was really more like a <laughs> webinar, but um, AOC had a like a, a Zoom call with the DSA that, and even she like admitted that it was just like, yeah, we really can't do anything here in DC. Um, 
we really need like an actual movement behind pushing us and it is and the problem is that we have now this sort of stand culture um mm-hmm. that has migrated to politicians so yeah 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 can't, and this is like i mean in many countries it's like you have the president and the prime minister and the reason for that is that like you have the president do all the ceremonial functions of the state and then the prime minister can be the one who can absorb all the hatred and it's like you know it's very weird on the left to see people not like just have a generic like yeah no i hate all politicians like everyone su- all of them suck they none of them should be trusted that is like not even true in for many people on the left anymore it's like only the right that will say stuff like that now which is it's very weird and it's something that we really need to get past because yeah why i don't understand the idea of ever like 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 who like nobody's political career is that important or ever like in nobody's entitled to a political career so i don't really care like what choices you have to make or don't make in given the given the environment and the idea that like assuming that you are like doing the best that you can it still is just like but that doesn't matter it doesn't matter whether or not you are working hard enough all that matters is like the results to the people you are accountable to the people who put yeah. you there and yeah for some reason this is still like a hard concept for the left to really co- cohere around because we're very hopeful and idealistic i guess um because they haven't discovered the immortal science of dialectical materialism <laughs> and so it is just like yeah i mean i agree there was a month where i really yeah like right after no between like new hampshire and after nevada it really i really yeah, started I, to think like oh god damn it you know and it, <laughs> and it was like extremely emotional for me and part of it was just like the idea that like yeah there were for once there would be like an abatement of suffering for once we would just get like you know it doesn't yeah. have to be this terrible all the time the world decided to get to do everyone a solid right now but uh you know that's just not going to happen like like you can't like we have to do it ourselves nobody's going to do it for us yeah and that's yeah. the thing i think people haven't quite entirely internalized and that's why mm-hmm. to bring it all the way back as we wrap this up yeah. that's why mutual aid and solidarity networks are so important yeah Nobody i just else is going to do it but us and you know what it's like that's not a bad thing you know like I just wish that you know we could just believe in ourselves yeah. a little bit yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like this whole thing with going back to work and like what does our world look like? You know, what is the future going to look like? And I I think that like this whole situation has really revealed kind of like what an impoverished world we're living mm-hmm. in, you know? Yeah. Where like when we think about the future, like all we can think about is like returning to the workplace or like um, going back you know, to CGI my, Fridays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend was like, my uh, my friend was like, what? Wait, what is there besides restaurants? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I was like, well, there's museums and like there's some other cool stuff, but like 
we really everything is like so narrow that uh-huh. I, I just like my hope just maybe like on a more I mean on a political and but also like on a spiritual level is just trying to like think of whether we can just make our world like bigger yeah and like uh you know capitalism's effect on like our world and our culture is so limiting Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. like um but yeah just if if we can like think of of something better and just kind of like now is kind of the time to demand it you know what i mean uh hey everyone we had to split this up into two episodes um and if you want to hear more of our conversation you're gonna have to become a patron www.patreon.com slash real sankara hours five dollars a month gives you our bonus content and that's where you can uh listen to this uh part two so for patrons enjoy part two for those of you who are listening for free uh we encourage you to support us